This morning we begin our, our Y series as a church. And before I continue, if you don't know me, I'm Devin Coughlin. I'm, I serve as the other pastor here. And uh, it is a joy and a privilege to do that. I'm the young pastor to Larry's old pastor. In this Y series, over the course of the next, of the course of uh, eight sermons or so, we're going to be taking a look at different factors of our corporate life together, why we do what we do. So we're going to be looking at questions like, why do we have elders? Or why should we fellowship? Or why do we give? Or why does preaching matter? And this morning, to kick off this series, we're going to be asking the question, why Sunday? Why Sunday? Why does Sunday matter? Why do we gather together on Sunday? Please open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. And as you do that, let me give you an idea of where we're going to be going this morning, how we're going to get to where we're going. We're going to start by walking through this passage together, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. And then with that as our foundation, I'm going to provide an answer to this question, why Sunday? And then I'm going to look, spend the majority of our time looking at two broad points of application that help to shed light on this answer to our question, why Sunday? But before I get into our text, let me pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we come to you. We come to you, the the God over all, the one who spoke and there was. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that your word does not return void, that you are efficacious in all you say. Your word always has its intended effect. And Lord, we ask that your word have its intended effect on us this morning. May we be conformed to all you have for us in your word. And may we grow into a people who continue to bring praise to your name. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we'll be asking the question, why Sunday? Now the epistle to the Hebrews, just brief background on this epistle, was written to convey the preeminence of Christ. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than any other prophet. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Jesus Christ is all. That's what the writer to Hebrews is saying. And we come to Hebrews 9, the, writer's, the writer lays out the, the limitations of the Levitical sacrificial system. Day after day, month after month, for the people, for God's people under God's law, year after year, blood had to be shed. Sacrifices had to be made again and again for the people of God. The temple, it reeked. It was a stinky place. The priests were, were a tired and smelly group of men. This is, this is what life looked like for Israel. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, just preceding our, our passage, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The writer goes on in verse 11 of chapter 10, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Again and again and again, they would offer these sacrifices. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then in 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those 
who are being sanctified. Because Christ has shed his own blood through him, we are washed clean. We are washed clean once and for all. In his shed blood, we have an ever-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And through him, we have access to God. No longer are we dependent on human priests and their regular sacrifices. Jesus is our sacrifice once and for all. Jesus is our great high priest. Now the writer of Hebrews, he turns to apply these realities. For, for over ten chapters, he's been exposing the greatness of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. And from here, he turns to apply this. He knows this truth is no good if it doesn't affect our lives. So that's what he's going to do, and, and it really begins in chapter 10, verse 19, when he makes this pivot. Before we read our passage, keep in mind two things as we read these verses. First, the writer is addressing a church. You'll see repeatedly, he says us and, and we. He's talking to a group of people who lived once in, in, first century, in the first century. And he is talking to us as well as the church. So keep that in mind. It's to a church. Second, be aware that this is all one long sentence. Verses 19 through 25 is just one sentence. Now in English, in our translation, we have it broken up. We see a few different periods and rests in there. But when the writer to the Hebrews wrote this, this was all one big connected thought. So with those two things in mind, let's open God's Word together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. This is the Word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thanks be to God for his word. Now we're going to walk through this passage in two movements. First, we're going to look at verses 19 through 21, and this is the the foundation, the foundation for our response. The foundation for our response is Jesus Christ. We live because He lives. We do because Jesus has done. The writer begins with this word, therefore. Because of all that I've just highlighted about the glory and sufficiency of Christ, therefore... But, but the writer doesn't stop there. He then goes and explains the basis for this call. He explains why the therefore is, what the therefore is there for. He doesn't assume you have in mind this basis. And so he gives us the ground right there. He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Christ's blood opens the door for us. But it doesn't just open the door. Christ's blood, it reserves us a seat. We don't have to sneak into the holy places. We don't have to be incognito or with our heads down low just trying to get into the holy places. No, we can enter with confidence. We belong there because we are covered in the blood of Jesus. So we have confidence to enter by, as verse 20 says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Jesus Christ 
is our high priest. He enters the holy places through his own sacrifice. But when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead like every other sacrifice that had ever been offered in the temple. No, no, Christ died and the immeasurable greatness, the immeasurable greatness of God's power was put on display. When he he raised him from the dead, as Paul writes in Ephesians, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. No, Jesus didn't stay dead. He is alive and he is seated at God's right hand. This is our Lord and Savior. This is our foundation. He is our cornerstone, our hope, our glory, our joy, our peace. Jesus gives us access to God. Jesus washes us clean. Jesus, through his body broken and his blood poured out, through his resurrection and perfect priesthood, Jesus opens for us a new and living way to the very presence of God. Thanks be to God for this gift we have in Jesus Christ. He is our foundation. He is the foundation for all we do. So this is the foundation for our response. And then we're going to look now at the second movement of this passage, our response. Verses 22 through 25, our response. All right, in light of who Jesus is, in light of all that he has done, what do we do? And we'll see the writer of Hebrews highlight four things that we're supposed to do. Number one, we're to draw near to God. This is the first way we respond. We draw near to God. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of what Jesus has done, we draw near. Let us draw near. Now this drawing near... It includes all we do in the, in the vertical aspect of our worship. We, we come to God. All that we do in, our, in the vertical aspect of our worship, both public and private. It's our hearts, it's both inward, our hearts are sprinkled clean, and it's outward. Our bodies are washed with pure water. We are to draw near to God, to get close to Him, to know Him, to love Him, to abide in Him. Now, the writer, he specifies the condition that we are to draw near in with a true heart. Let us draw near with a true heart. God's concern does not center on how we look or how we follow particular rules or rituals. God's concern focuses on the sincerity of our heart. And the sincerity of our heart, it finds its rest, it finds its identity in full assurance of faith. Now, this assurance... What the writer is referring to, it's, it's a complete trust in that Jesus is all we need, in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, full assurance of faith. So on Sunday as we gather, we don't come to God flippantly or fearfully. We come to Him in confidence. We come with joy and hope, resting in Christ as our priest, as our righteousness, as our access giver. We draw near convinced of the sufficiency of Christ and Christ alone to grant us acceptance before God. We need Him and nothing else. We need Jesus and nothing else. Now, the second way that the writer of the Hebrew, to the Hebrews calls us to respond is to hold fast to our hope. 
We respond by holding fast to our hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. We're told to hold fast to, to cling to our hope. Challenges will come. Persecution will be faced. Adversity and hardship will seek to knock you off of this hope that we have. But hold fast to Him, for He who promised is faithful. So as we come to God together, we remember His faithfulness. This church gathers to recount the faithfulness of God. We are to be a remembering people. We are a people of memory. We draw near to God and recall the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And we tell one another of this hope. We tell one another of what God has promised. So when someone is suffering, we remind them of God's promise in Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. When someone is doubting, we remind them of the promise in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a, a, a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When someone is persecuted for their faith, we point them to Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We remember God's promises, for he who promised is faithful. In response to the sufficient, complete work of Christ, When we gather together, we hold fast to our hope by remembering God's faithfulness. That's the second way we respond. The third way we respond, the writer of the Hebrews has, is to encourage one another. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now this verse, it speaks to the horizontal aspect of our gathered worship. The writer has addressed us vertically. We're to draw near to God. Now he talks more explicitly about how we relate to one another. Now we'll talk about the idea of meeting together later on, so I'm going to move that aside for a moment. But for now, let's look at this idea of encouraging one another. Now I find this idea of considering, let us consider how to stir up one another A fascinating idea, but one that is often neglected in the church. The word consider that's used here speaks to the need for for preparation to serve others. One commentator says it this way, it implies thoughtful reflection on the needs of other believers. Thoughtful reflection on the needs of other believers. Does that describe how you think about the church? Before arriving this morning, did you thoughtfully reflect on the needs of of your brothers and sisters. How you could spiritually serve them or how you could stir them up to love and good works. Did you consider these things? In response to the access to God given to us by Jesus Christ, our call is to, it's to encourage one another. It's to consider others and encourage them. We, we encourage them by considering them and their needs. Now one, one conflict that will come up again from time to time between Christine and I will be related to how I serve her. I can have a tendency to serve my wife in the ways that I want to serve her, that are convenient to me or that that meet my end. Now, there isn't really a laying down of my life in these moments for her. 
It can often be more, more self-serving when I serve her the way that I want to serve her. So when we finish up dinner, I start doing the dishes. And it's pretty convenient because we have four children, and now they're not my problem anymore. I'm doing the dishes. <laughs> but that doesn't serve my wife. <laughs> it is great, though, but it doesn't serve my wife. Now, it, it typically points to this, this idea of serving her in the ways that I want to serve her. It points to something I want to get from her. I want her praise. I want her, her uh, accolades, or I want her... her I, I just want my own peace. can be, be at times why I serve her the way I want to serve her. Now, our call in the church and our call in our relationships is certainly to consider one another. But it's not just what they want, which there's biblical precedent for that. Philippians 2 verse 4, consider the interests of others more important than your own. It's not just what they want, though. It's to build them up in Christ. That's what our call is. Give them what God wants them to have, not what you want them to have. We encourage one another and we edify one another by speaking truth to one another. Larry sent out an article to the church this past Friday entitled, Church Should Feel Uncomfortable. There was one quote in particular that jumped out to me. The church doesn't exist to meet our every need and satisfy our various checklists of tastes and comfort zone preferences. If anything, it exists to destabilize such things. The church should draw us out of the dead-eye stupor of a culture of comfort worship. It should jostle us awake to the reality that comfort is one of the greatest obstacles to growth. So often we can be driven by what we want in how we come to church. We, we determine how effective a Sunday gathering was based on what we got out of it. But that's not the only reason you're here, brothers and sisters. You're here to encourage one another. Now this call to encourage one another, it, it necessitates presence. It highlights the fact that, that we actually have to be here in order to encourage one another. So come to church. <laughs> It also highlights the fact that that we don't come to church just for our own spiritual growth. It's not all about you. We show up for others. And I'm going to speak to that more later. That's all I'll say for now. So because of the access that God has given us through Jesus Christ, encourage one another. Now, our fourth response, we've walked through three so far, our response to, to draw near to God, to hold fast to our hope, to encourage one another. Our fourth response is to look forward to the day. Verse 25 says, Do these things all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now there's both an urgency and an anticipation that should characterize the Christian life. Regarding the urgency, our time on this earth is scarce. It's limited. We only have this one earthly life to live. So let us not squander away our lives on that which is fleeting and temporal. As we see the day drawing near, let us do these things. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us encourage one another all the more so because this day is drawing near. And notice it's a a capital D day. It's the day. And that day is drawing near. Now regarding anticipation, we have to recognize what the church is doing when it gathers Now, there are various ways that this is described in Scripture. We are, in this earth, strangers. We are aliens. We are exiles. We are sojourners. I read one author describe the Christian life as a kind of immigration from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. He writes this. He says, In his body we learn how to live like locals of his kingdom. 
Christian worship is our enculturation as citizens of heaven, subjects of kingdom come. It's how we learn to live on that day. We do that through church. We gather as a church all the more eagerly because we're preparing for and we're anticipating the day. The church, it's the gym where we train our bodies for heaven. Church is, it's spring training for heaven. It's one way to look at it. The church prepares us for the day described in Revelation 22.3 when no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. That is the day that is destined to come. And the gathered church, we're just practicing for that day. We're preparing for that day. Though we are still sojourning in this life, God, through the church, He gives us a taste of the fellowship and joy of that, that heavenly assembly yet to come. That's what we get every, every Sunday as we gather together. Theologian David Peterson, he writes this, What we experience now in our relationship with God in the company of His people is an anticipation of the ultimate reality. The whole of life is to be lived with reference to that unshakable kingdom and the prospect of living in God's presence forever. When we live that way, when we set our eyes on eternity, we aren't shaken by what goes on in our lives. We aren't shaken by what goes on in the world around us because we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What a hope we have in Him. So as we gather together, we have our eyes kind of in three places. We have our eyes on the past, at what Christ has done for us. We have our eyes on the present, at the, the promises that sustain us and as we encourage one another. And we have our eyes on the, on the future as we look to the coming reality of heaven. So why Sunday? Why Sunday? Here's, here's the answer that I came up with for this question. Why Sunday? I think it's going to be predicted. Yes, it is. We recognize Sunday as the Lord's Day, a day given to God for His glory and for our good. We gather to be reoriented to the reality of who He is, who we are, and what He has done, encouraging one another as we anticipate the day when we will see Him face to face. We recognize Sunday as the Lord's Day, a day given to God for His glory and for our good. We gather to be reoriented to the reality of who He is, who we are, and what He has done, encouraging one another as we anticipate the day when we will see Him face to face. Now, in light of these scriptural truths, I'm going to make two broad points of application rooted in this, in this passage and in other passages that, that seek to shed light on the answer to this question. So application number one, view Sunday as a gift. View Sunday as a gift. I'm going to spend more time on this than the second one, just a heads up. View Sunday as a gift. This day and this time is for our good. It's so that we might receive grace from God and from one another. Pastor Ray Ortland puts it this way. He says, Sunday is not an extra Saturday. It's not the end of the weekend. It's not the day to get caught up for Monday. It's the Lord's Day when we set lesser things aside and replenish ourselves and others with all the fullness of God. We replenish ourselves and others with all the fullness of God. Now, I've noticed in myself and in others that this, this idea of viewing Sunday as another Saturday, it can creep in. 
And it, it can creep in rather subtly, I think. There was a season for me a few years back where it became easy to see Sunday as just part of my two-day weekend. And I saw gathered worship as good, something to be valued, and normally the best option for me on that Sunday, but it was still just an option for my Sunday morning. It was just part of my weekend. Now, during this season, I would miss church because, for many reasons, many reasons I miss church during this season, Uh, because my friends came into town, Uh, because a family event was happening, because I had tickets to the game, because I was tired and it had been a really busy week, Uh, because my kids were sick, because I was sick, because I was getting away on vacation or to go see family or to see, to see friends. Now, maybe you can identify with some of these reasons. Maybe some of them hit closer to home than others. Now, none of these reasons for missing church are sinful. None of them are sinful, per se. None of them are, they're tacitly wrong. None of them are. So don't get all judgy next time you hear someone say, I won't be there on Sunday because of X, Y, or Z. No, no, there's nothing wrong with any of these reasons. But what is wrong with them is what's not there. The problem is not in the reason. The problem can be in what's lacking in our thinking behind the reason. What isn't a part of the thought process. And so church, I'm speaking particularly to, to members of this church, and I had uh, pulled up earlier our membership covenant just to remind you what it says, what we've committed to with one another. It says, We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together but will faithfully attend our corporate worship, treasuring the church's gathering to sing, pray, and receive the whole counsel of God's word. We will defend and maintain gospel-centered ministry in this church by upholding biblical preaching, the administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So if you're not a member of this church, if you're a guest here, we are so glad you're here but I'm not really talking to you. And I would encourage you to be a part of the body of Christ, join a church. But this is for those those who have made a covenant commitment to be a part of this church. So what I want to address is what's lacking in our thought process, what's not there. Now, what is often lacking in our thinking is what God wants to do and will do in our gatherings, what God is doing in our gatherings. We forget that we come together to hold fast our hope. We forget that we come together to encourage one another. We lose sight of the many ways God wants to bless us and give us rest and refreshment as we come to Him, as we build others up. We miss how the body of Christ will be missing a part of it if we're not there. Ultimately, we've just stopped seeing Sunday as a gift. We've stopped valuing Sunday. Why? How has this happened? How does it happen? Well, for me during this season... I loved God, I loved the church and saw it as important, but it just wasn't that important. I picked up this line of thinking from someplace other than God's Word. Now the world around us, it's constantly telling us that happiness is found in getting stuff, or in having relationships, or in having fun, or making memories, or in power or prestige, or in accomplishments. If you have more, if you do more, if you see more, if you experience more, then, then you will be happy. That's what the world tells us. And Satan is dead set on convincing us of these ideas. And our our sinful flesh endlessly buys into them. But here's the fundamental problem. These ideas, they substitute God for self. This is one way that we can define sin. Sin substitutes God with self as the way to happiness. 
We see joy and fulfillment in ourselves rather than in God. It's through pursuing our own loves, our own desires, that we attain happiness. This is the path to the good life. Now, Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, he puts it this way. He says, As far as sin appears, it holds this forth before all and speaks this language, that there is not enough good in God, that is, in the blessed, glorious, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable good and fountain of all good. Yet sin makes this profession, that there is not enough good in God to satisfy this soul. Or else why does the soul depart from him in any sinful way and go to the creature for any good if there is enough good in God himself? Sin says that God is not, not quite enough to satisfy our souls. And you know what? That's what the world around us tells us too. Through the way we live our lives, we are often being taught and, and shaped to find our satisfaction in things other than God. What we watch and read the websites we visit, what we think about, who we spend our time with, the places we go. These are all things that shape us. They make us who we are. They give us a sense of identity and they build in us certain values. They present to us some picture of what life is supposed to look like. They present a picture of the good life. And isn't that what we, we all crave? And it's, a, it's fine to desire the good life. We want peace. We want comfort. We want happiness. We want contentment. We want fullness of life and freedom in life. But here's what we are daily in danger of missing. There is no good greater than God. There's no good greater than God. God is the chief good. Richard Baxter says it this way. He says, that good which contains all other good in it must needs itself be the best. That good which contains all other good in it, which is God, he contains all good in himself, that good must be the best good. God is that good. God is the good which contains all other good in himself. God himself, as one Puritan said, is the sweetest love, the richest mercy, the surest friend, the chiefest good, the greatest beauty, the highest honor, and the fullest happiness. There is no good greater than God. Now, as many of you know, I've been working on my, my uh, doctorate and studying a lot of the Puritans, which is where a lot of this content comes from. And this concept of the goodness of God and God being the chief good, I wouldn't say it's, it's a new idea, but when I read the descriptions that these guys provide of how good God is and what it looks like to honor God with all of our lives, it's humbling because I don't live like this. I quickly move away from God being the chief good and see other things as the real source of happiness or a better option for happiness. We can all sit here and hear of God as the chief good and nod our heads and, and agree, but far too often we don't live like this is reality. Functionally, we don't live like God is the greatest good. And one of the places this can be seen is in how we think about Sunday. Our functional misunderstanding is seen in how we think about our corporate worship together. So author Jamie Smith, he says this. He says, the church, the body of Christ, is the place where God invites us to renew our loves, to reorient our desires and retrain our appetites. Christian worship is a feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires. 
and are then sent into his creation to act accordingly. Sundays, they're they're a gift to us and an opportunity for us. We come to church to be shaped into God's people. We come to be reoriented to what is really real, to the ultimate reality, that we are sons and daughters of the living God. We are sons and daughters of the living God who, who created all things. He reigns sovereignly over all things. He is on His throne yesterday, today, and forever. That's not a message we're going to get from the world. But that's what we get when we gather together in church. Our gathered worship is one way that we counteract the pressure to be shaped into consumeristic, narcissistic individuals devoted to our own glory and pleasure. We've got to fight that. We have to fight that. We are all hardwired in our sin, or in our, sin our sinful cravings, our flesh to see ourselves as the end to happiness. That's what the world's telling us. That's what Satan wants us to believe. That's what our flesh craves. But that's not why we gather together in church. We gather together in church to fight those lies, to say, yes, in one sense it is about you, and this is what God has done for you. But in another sense, it's not about you. God has saved a people and brought a people together to live in community with one another, to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to remind one another of the greatness and goodness of our God. There are countless places you could be this morning. You could be in bed. You could be on a hike. You could be out to eat. You could be shopping. You could be tailgating. You could be getting house projects done. You could be working. You could be traveling. There are countless ways you could be pursuing the satisfaction of your own desires this morning that are all outside of this cafeteria, away from these people. But you're here. You're here. And the fact that you are here and you will be here next Sunday and the Sunday after that and after that and on and on makes a profound statement about where your heart is set. This practice shapes us. Now, this is one reason why we as a church, we're going to gather together on December 25th and on January 1st and on January 8th and January 15th. The church and its schedule, it's not defined or dictated by our consumer culture. It's defined by knowing God, knowing God the greatest good, as He reveals Himself in His Word. When we are united with Christ, we have new priorities. We're given a new family. We have a new life, a new heart. And part of that life is lived out when we gather together as a church on Sunday to sit under the Word to encourage one another through fellowship, to gather for the Lord's Supper, to give ourselves to prayer and praise. This is who we are as God's people. This is who we are as the church, and this is what we do. Sunday is a gift meant for our good and for God's glory. It helps us to define ourselves as the people of God. It makes a statement about our values about our priorities. We give this day, this, this time, to order our lives and our weeks around Him, glorifying and enjoying Him together. View this time for what it is, a gift from our gracious Heavenly Father, the source of all good. So that's application number one. View Sunday as a gift. View Sunday as a gift. Application number two, prepare your heart for Sunday. Prepare your heart for Sunday. Do you come to church prepared? Do you come to church prepared? Thankfully, this morning I did. 
<laughs> but do you come to church prepared? <laughs> Puritan George Swinnick, he says this. This is a longer quote, so bear with me. But it's a good quote. There is scarce any work which admits of any considerable perfection but requires some previous preparation. There's no good work that doesn't require preparation. In works of nature, the ground must be dung, dressed, plowed, harrowed, and all to prepare it for the seed. In works of art, the musician tunes his violin, screwing up some of his strings higher, letting some down lower, as occasion is, and all to prepare it for his lesson. And indeed, without this, he would make but sad music. Amen to that. Truly, friend, truly, friend, thus it is with us in matters of higher moment. Hearts, like soil, must be prepared for the seed of the word. How many a sermon has been lost because this was wanting? And the violins of our souls must be tuned to praise God, or otherwise they will sound but harshly in his ears. Hearts are like soil. They must be prepared. We are like instruments. We must be tuned. So prepare your hearts for Sundays. Now what does this look like? I'm going to offer a few, a few suggestions that we might prepare our hearts One suggestion, get up early. Get up early. One way we can prepare our hearts for Sunday is to go to bed early on Saturday so we can get up early on Sunday. The decisions we make the night before, they do affect our experience of this day. We are able to get up early for all kinds of things. Think about it. You get up early for work or for vacation or for exercise or for doctor's appointments or for breakfast. If we had proper perspective on what God wants to do on this day, then I think we would not have much trouble rising early enough to spend time in God's Word on Sunday morning, or to pray and meditate, or to get to church early enough to greet and encourage one another. Now, some Sundays, you're going to be running late, and that's okay. You are welcome, and you are a vital part of this community. But I would encourage you, make effort to plan out your schedule so that you don't, aren't, are not encumbered and distracted by all that's going around in, in life around you. So that starts on Saturday night, and it can be, you can receive much benefit by rising early on Sunday morning. So rise early. Another way that we can prepare our hearts is through meditation. Meditation. Now, I'm not referring to some Eastern practice where you still your mind like water. No, I mean the serious contemplation about God in order to stir our affections for God. That's what meditation is. Contemplation about God in order to stir our affections for God. When I wake up in the morning, my heart tends to be hard. I do not tend to be excited about the things of God when my alarm goes off. Now this is not a sign of dead spirituality. This is simply the disposition of fallen humanity. So what should we do? Well, Swinnick, he helpfully suggests, he says, when your heart is like wax hardened, bring it by meditation to the warm beams of his sun, and they will soften it. When your heart is hard like wax, bring it before the sun of God, and and his sun will soften it. Take time to contemplate the incomparable majesty of God that makes angels cover their eyes and rivers clap their hands and hills sing for joy. Think on the infinite love of God that renders the God who created all mindful of you. That He would send His Son for you to die in your place. 
When we think on this love that saves us, our hearts must be stirred with love for Him. Meditate on our coming everlasting rest when striving, pain, sin, and tears will be gone. When we will be in the very presence of God Himself, the one who is Himself fullness of joy. Think on that which we cannot see, the crown of glory that awaits, the full and final satisfaction of our souls that is to come. Reflect on the drawing near of of the day that is to come. So prepare your heart through meditation. These are all things you can meditate on. Another way we prepare our hearts is to consider others. We talked about a little bit about this earlier. Do you come having considered how you might build others up? Have you prayed that God would give you words to say or scriptures to share or encouragement to offer? The writer of Hebrews, he makes it quite clear that this is what we're to do. Similarly, Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians 14, he, he conveys a similar expectation. The assumption that Paul makes is that the congregation is ready to do something. 1 Corinthians 14.26, he writes this, What then, brothers... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Paul expects that the church prepares itself to contribute, to encourage, to build up. They, they have something. It's, an, it's assumed in that passage. So what does this look like? Well, for us, we have CCB. Get on CCB and go, go pray through the members' names. Get a whole list of everybody in the church. Pray through their names. Write down thoughts on things you can encourage them with. Have in mind particular people that you can speak words of truth to or meet them in their time of need. Pray for members of the church throughout the week. And that brings us to another way that we can prepare our hearts. Pray. This is another way we prepare our heart for Sunday. We pray. Pray beforehand. Not just for 30 seconds when you get to your seat. Spend some time praying in the morning. So get up early so you can pray. There's another longer quote from, from Thomas Watson. Listen to these wise words on, on what we are to pray. Beg a blessing upon the word which is to be preached, that it may be a savor of life to us, that by it our minds may be more illuminated, our corruptions more weakened, our stock of grace more increased. Let us pray that God's special presence may be with us, that our hearts may burn within us while God speaks, that we may receive the word into meek and humble hearts, and that we may submit to it and bring forth fruits. Pray for him who dispenses the word, who preaches the word, that his tongue may be touched with a coal from God's altar, that God would warm his heart who is to help warm others. I like this. He says, Some complain they find no benefit by the word preached. Perhaps they did not pray for their minister as they should. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Pray with and for your family. Yea, pray for all the congregations that meet on this day in the fear of the Lord, that the dew of the Spirit may fall with the manna of the Word, that some souls may be converted and others strengthened, that gospel ordinances may be continued and have no restraint upon them. These are the things we should pray for. The tree of mercy will not drop its fruit unless it be shaken by the hand of prayer. The tree of mercy will not drop its fruit unless it be shaken by the hand of prayer. Prepare your hearts for Sundays. Do you want to grow in how you value our time together? Do you want to make the most of this day to experience all the grace that God 
wants to give you through this day and through the body of Christ as we gather together? Do you want to eat of the fruit of the tree of mercy that God has in store for us? Prepare your heart for Sunday. So, so why Sunday? We recognize Sunday as the Lord's Day. A day given to us for God's glory and for our good. We gather to be reoriented to the reality of who He is, who we are, and what He has done. Encouraging one another as we anticipate the day when we will see Him face to face. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened to us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the fact that we can know You through Your Word. You reveal something of Yourself to us. You don't reveal just something. You reveal all that we need to us through Your Word. Thank You for the person and work of Jesus Christ that is put on display in Your Word. And may we live our lives with Him and His work and His superiority to all things as the foundation for all we do. Lord, we thank You for what You have done for us. And we want to honor You with all of our lives, with all of our time, with all of our resources. Lord, may You use our gatherings week to week as an opportunity to be conformed to Your image, to be reoriented to what is really real. Lord, may You soften our hard hearts through this gospel truth. And Lord, thank You that You are faithful to Your promises. Thank You that Your Word does not return void. Thank You that we can experience You and know You as we gather together. And thank You for these brothers and sisters that You brought together. This, this family of God, these, these sojourners on a journey to heaven. Thank You that we could stand shoulder to shoulder and encourage one another in this journey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.